Hello, my name is Casey Rogers, and I'm your host for the Emerging Writers Podcast Series. This podcast is an exploration for what it takes for a writer to become a published author and how to sustain a professional writing career. Like many of you, writing is my passion, and I'm confident that I know how to write a compelling story. But what holds me back is the same thing that holds many other writers back. How do we navigate a system that is about finding a bestseller rather than finding the best work? There are obstacles to our success, and many of those obstacles have nothing to do with the quality of our writing. In the next couple of episodes, I'm going to speak with authors about their books and how and why they chose to write their stories within the framework of a specific genre. One reason why people work within genres is it helps readers to find your books. Another reason is genres also give the author a blueprint of sorts because each genre has a specific set of rules for the writer to follow. We'll explore what the needs and expectations of the audience are within these genres and why one might be well suited for your project. In this episode, I'm speaking with author Ed Lundgren, who writes historical fiction. His book, Unlike Any Other, was published recently and tells the fascinating story of Bathsheba Spooner, the first woman in American history to be executed following the Declaration of Independence. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ed Londigan. I'm an author, and it's great to be a guest on Casey's podcast this morning. I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been writing my entire life. I started writing when I was a little kid. I found out in college that's what I should do. So what did I do? I went into the insurance industry. 40 years later, I actually quit my job and I started writing, doing business writing and writing my books. And I now have three books out, uh, three historical fiction books. And I have another one that hopefully will be out by the end of the year, which is a contemporary fiction story. And then there's another one, a companion to that, that is in the works outlined and it's, it's coming along, hopefully. Well, thank you, Ed. Can you tell me a little bit about your latest work, Unlike Any Other? Sure. Um, It's the story of Bathsheba Spooner. And Bathsheba was the daughter of a wealthy and powerful man in Massachusetts before the Revolutionary War. Her father, Timothy Ruggles, was an amazing man. He was the Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas. He was a Speaker of the House of Representatives. He was President of the Stamp Act Congress. He was a general in the French and Indian War, ultimate upper class. And Bathsheba, like her father, was strong-willed, smart, and a staunch British loyalist. She was married to a guy, Joshua Spooner, and it's unclear whether she married him of her own volition or she was forced into this. For historical fiction purposes, of course, I like to think that she was forced into it. And she despised him from the start. Over the course of 10 years of married life, it got worse and worse. Uh, She bore him four children, one of whom died. Her hatred for this man grew. And one day in 1777, a 16-year-old Continental soldier, Ezra Ross, was making his way home from Morristown, New Jersey, from Washington's winter camp, to his home in Ipswich. He was walking 300 miles in January and February, and he was sick. He had cold, flu, whatever it was. He pretty much collapsed on her doorstep. She took him in, nursed him back to health over a few weeks, and sent him on his way. Uh, He came back five months later on his way to fight at Saratoga, and he stopped for a couple days 
and spent time with her. And at some point, there was a little romantic spark that flared. Now, keep in mind, she was 31 years old at this point. He was 16. Something happened. He went and fought at Saratoga, came back five months later, I guess, four months later, and stayed with her and her husband. And Joshua took a liking to the kid, not knowing that he and his wife, that Ezra and his wife were becoming romantically involved or maybe lustfully involved is better. He stayed with them for two and a half months and he would go with Joshua on his little business trips. Joshua was wealthy. He owned farms here and there and property down by the Cape and stuff in and around Boston. They were the top family in the town of Brookfield in central Massachusetts. And so he was gone a lot. They were going on a trip and she told Ezra, I got some poison, poison him, get rid of him. And you and I can be together forever. You can be Lord of the manor. You can have everything. You can have me. The life will be good. Just get rid of him. And the kid couldn't. Uh, he actually took the horse that Joshua lent him and rode home to Ipswich. In the meantime, after General Burgoyne surrendered the British troops at Saratoga, the plan was for the troops to be marched to Boston and sent on ships back to England. The Continental Congress got word of that and kind of went, whoa, time out here, folks. Why are we going to pay all this money to send 6,500 soldiers back across the ocean so they can come back and fight against us? They're staying here. We're not sending them anywhere. So we had 6,500 soldiers milling around Massachusetts. No one wanted to pay these guys. They couldn't have any money to pay for food or for a shelter or room or board, any of that stuff. And a lot of them were tradesmen. They were carpenters, blacksmiths, tinsmiths, whatever. And they just started wandering throughout New England and working. And they were actually, for the most part, accepted. Two of these men, James Buchanan and Bill Brooks, uh, came to Bathsheba. And that led me to conclude that these British soldiers showed up at her door. Why? Probably because she had uh, British tendencies. When they came, there was a terrific blizzard, a blizzard of a century type of thing. They stayed with her for 10 days, drinking and eating, and she just entertained them like the best hostess. And these guys were soldiers. This was amazing for them. She convinced them to murder her husband. They were there the night Joshua was coming back. They planned the murder on February 28th, 1778. Night before uh, the murder, the kid comes back from Ipswich to claim Bathsheba as his own. He finds these two British soldiers and he's like, wait a minute, you're going to kill him? I'm going to challenge him to a duel because that was the only legal way to get rid of someone. Of course, it never occurred to him, why would a now 17-year-old challenge a wealthy businessman, a respected member of the community, to a duel. What the hell would that be about? The British soldiers convinced him, that's dumb, don't do that, we're going to take care of it. Joshua comes home from the tavern, Brooks attacks him outside, beats him senseless, Buchanan goes out, they shove Spooner down the well. Now, they weren't the brightest bunch there, because they shoved them down the only well on the farm. Now, keep in mind, it's February, snow, you know, grounds frozen, whatever. They went back in, Bathsheba pays them, including Ezra, with uh, her husband's clothing, money, shoe buckles, all the jewelry, engraved shoe buckles, all that stuff. They head off to Worcester and they start drinking. Someone overhears them, the people start getting suspicious, and all of a sudden news of the murder reaches Worcester and they're arrested. Uh, the kid confesses immediately. Yeah, I did it. I'm sorry, Jesus. Oh my God, I didn't mean to. It's not right. And the soldiers finally say, yeah, we did it. Bathsheba's arrested and brought into Worcester where they're questioned and everything. They are tried and convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. Bathsheba comes out and says, I'm pregnant. And the, at that time, there was a ruling council, executive council did uh, ran Massachusetts because it was in between the 
Declaration of Independence and when the state was actually established in its own right in 1780. So there was this four-year period where there was just this ruling council. They're the ones who would determine the date of death. So she said, I'm pregnant. They had midwives examine her, 12 midwives. Now, if you look at a naked woman who's pregnant, you know, a few months pregnant, you can tell. They went, nope, she's not pregnant at all, which is kind of amazing. So that led me to believe that people just hated her because they hated her father. Paul Revere made an engraving of her father and other men who agreed to help the British rule the state. And it was Tim Ruggles leading them to the jaws of hell. I figured that the midwives did not like Bathsheba because of her beliefs. She murdered her husband and her father. So she pleaded with them again, requested another exam. They gave her one. There were six midwives, three from the first batch and three new ones. One of the new midwives was her brother-in-law, Dr. John Green. John was the prominent physician in Worcester County at the time. He uh, and two others came back and said, yes, she's pregnant. The other three said, no, she's not. We have a tie here. The executive council was influenced by her dead husband's stepbrother, John Avery Jr. He was the deputy secretary. He hated Bathsheba. He hated her father. He was one of the leading um, it was called the Loyal Nine. He was one of the top nine patriots in Massachusetts. He convinced them to go, let her die. So wow. Bathsheba on July 2nd, 1778, was hanged with the other three during a big thunderstorm. And because of the hatred of everyone towards Bathsheba, her sister didn't want to have her buried in the Brookfield Cemetery uh, because that's where her dead husband was buried. So they buried her on the Green Estate in Worcester, which was enlarged and improved by Dr. Green's descendants. And in 1905, the family gave it to Worcester and is now Green Hill Park. And oh. Bathsheba, an unborn child, are buried somewhere in the park. Her trial was the trial of the century at that point. The prosecuting attorney was Robert Treat Payne, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He went on to become the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. Uh, the judges included Jedediah Foster, who was her neighbor. He lived like two miles away. They would have known each other. He knew her father. Uh, I think he served in the legislature with him. I mean, they knew each other. And Jedediah was one of the men who drafted the Massachusetts Constitution. Her attorney was Levi Lincoln, who was like five years out of law school. Well, not law school. I mean, he'd been practicing for five years. And it was the first time uh, an insanity defense was used in the United mm. States because he couldn't defend her any other way than she's out of her mind. Right. One of the things was she didn't plan it very well. They had no plan of escape. There was her two servants, her three kids, two gentlemen staying overnight, Brooks and Buchanan and Ezra and herself. There were 11 people in the house that night when the murder happened. What person in their right mind would do that? So that was the first insanity defense. Tell me more about how you researched this story. Her case was written up in a couple uh, books about like the greatest criminal trials in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, she was one of five in one book. Wow. Uh, yeah. And there were a couple of legal experts who wrote this. There were a lot of later articles and books. The American Antiquarian Society had several things. So yeah, I did a lot of research, but from start to finish, when I actually started typing this uh, to the time it was published was probably three and a half years. 
historical fiction is easy to write. It mm -hmm. actually is. It's, it's easier than than other fiction, I think, because you have the storyline. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. all the plot points are there. All mm -hmm. the characters are there. You know how mm -hmm. it's going to end. All you have to do is bring them to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe create a few other characters and fill it in and come up with the dialogue. But yeah, you're God. And so you, you can create that around the framework. Mm -hmm. So yeah, historical fiction is a lot of fun to write. Yeah. It can be heavy on the research because you want to make sure it's right. Because if you don't, some reader is going to come to you and send you an email going, you know what? You didn't know what you were talking about because mm -hmm. this really didn't, it wasn't this way or this didn't happen or whatever. And you need to avoid that. Yeah. You have to come up with everything. The contemporary fiction I'm writing now, I had to come up with the entire storyline. I had mm -hmm. to come up with all, I mean, it all came out of my head and it's like, dear God, this is far more difficult. Let's move on and okay. discuss your process. You said you started the project about three years ago. Okay, so your publisher released it on March 1st. Tell us the name of your publisher and what your journey as a writer from okay. the beginning of your process to the date of publishing. Tell us okay. a little bit about that arc. Okay, uh, well, yeah, that really started for Bathsheba anyway. Uh, of course, I knew the story. It was mentioned in a lot of the history books that I have. I'm an active member of the Quaybog Historical Society, which comprises six towns that were first settled in 1660 here. So we have a lot of material. So it had all been there, but it started bubbling around. I, I was at a festival, the Asparagus Festival in West Brookfield, oh, a few years ago. And one of the guys, a fellow writer I know from the area, he wrote his only fiction story, and it was about Bathsheba Spooner. He's a great writer of nonfiction. He's a horrible writer of fiction. And he admitted it. And I thought, you know what? I'm a pretty good writer. So why don't I write a story about Bathsheba? It's a hell of a story, as you could, you could tell. For me, the process really is I immerse myself in the material. I read. I learn as much as I can. I play sponge. I just suck it all in. Mm -hmm. And then when I have it, it just rolls around in my head for a while. And then I figure, okay, now how am I going to structure this? Again, I know the storyline. I know all the characters and whatever. And, and again, the research can, you know, consists of, you know, how did they live in those days? What were the houses like? What kind of furniture did they have? What kind of clothes did they wear? How many horses or cows or sheep or whatever did they have? What kind of businesses were around in the area? Where was the tavern, you know? And I go through all of that. Yeah, I do a lot of research and then I try and plug it in that, okay, now that I know all of this, here's the situation. Bathsheba and Spooner got married. They were married on January 15th, 1766. Well, okay, what was the weather like? What did, what did women wear to their mm -hmm. wedding on those things? What did men wear? You're talking about someone who was wealthy, one of the wealthiest people in the, in the state. Um, what would it have been like? Where would they have had a reception? Who would have attended? What would they have dressed like? What was Spooner's house like? And again, it being fiction, you can take liberties. Mm -hmm. um, actual fact, they did not live in the house that I had them living in when they were married. That house they bought after they were married, someone else built it. I had just, that was Spooner's house and that's where he lived and Bathsheba moved there. So anyway, I didn't, I didn't stick to that because sometimes in historical fiction, you find out facts that are interesting, but they're dry and dull and you put them in the story. So, but yeah, that's it. I absorb and I, it goes around in my head and I kind of filter it out, compare it to what I know of the story and then start bringing it to life, plug in all the details. What are the most common misconceptions that people have about writing 
historical nonfiction? Well, I think the misconceptions about writers in general is it's easy. Oh, you sit down at a computer and, you know, you, you write. This took three years to put together, three and a half years. And they don't realize that you have to end up spending hours and hours and hours actually coming up with a story and typing it out, then looking at it and revising it possibly two, three, four times. Then you send it out to readers that you have who give you comments. And that can take, you know, six weeks for them to read it. It comes back, it takes you another two months to go through and revise it. They don't see the 27 steps and the four years it takes to put a book out. And yeah. one of the most difficult things that people have, writers have to do, and this, this is a painful experience, is the old phrase, kill your darlings, mm-hmm. um, where you have something that you wrote that is absolutely perfect. It is just some of the best words you've ever put on paper, mm-hmm. and it is phenomenal, and you go through, and it really doesn't add anything to the story. Mm-hmm. My process is, I just have, I have what I call a cuts file. So mm-hmm. if I go through, I'm drafting, I just cut it and slap it in this other file and I save it because I may be able to use it in another book or wherever. I think one of the most painful things about being a writer. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's brilliant that you do a cuts file. I do kind of the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a really, really good process. What about your process after, now that the book is published, what are some of the things that you're doing to promote it as opposed to your publisher promoting it? Can you address those issues? Oh, sure, of course. Because this is such a phenomenal story, uh, it's also kind of timeless. You, you could write this story in the current day. I mean, you mm-hmm. could take the same thing and it would be a phenomenal story. But what I did was I realized this has such great potential. I actually hired a publicist. Mm-hmm. and uh, I had one it didn't work out so uh, she's no longer working for me I hired another one and she's going great guns but it's everything from doing talks at libraries senior centers historical societies book signings I'll talk to anybody and everything about this I'm doing interviews on local cable access tv channels all over the place. I mean, I'm looking to cover all of New England and Eastern New York. That's what I'm, I'm shooting for. And yeah, I'm going to promote the hell out of it. So this could be two years worth of, of, of real heavy legwork because that's the other thing. The book comes out and then the hard part starts. Actually, writing the book was the easy part. Mm-hmm. But now you're going to spend 30 hours or probably more a week mm-hmm. promoting this. Mm-hmm. And I did that to some extent with my first two, but this is going to require a significant investment of my time and effort and money actually to promote this yeah so i'm gonna go great guns on this i mean this is my job now this Mm -hmm. is what i do i write and i promote and my publisher white river press linda rogar uh she's wonderful she's helping promote it too it's being distributed it's going to be amazon and barnes and noble target books a million indie bound hudson booksellers powell booksellers you can go in any bookstore and order it and whatever it's going to be in libraries uh you name it it's getting distributed everywhere uh and she's really providing a lot of stuff but most of this is on the author major publishing houses they'll do a book tour for you right. you know right. and they'll have you give talks and you know it's three months a pretty intense thing and then you do periodic things for someone like myself who doesn't have that, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And people just don't understand that. Um, no. So yeah, no. anyway, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. But I guess, yeah, my point is it's much more time consuming 
And you have to be dedicated to this. Exactly. You can't, you can't write a book and then go, why isn't anybody buying it? Because right. no one knows about it. I'm really excited that we had a chance to talk and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and we'll get your website linked below so that people can check it out and buy your book. I really appreciate all the time that you've spent with me. You're perfectly welcome. I will be happy to talk to you anytime. Excellent. As authors, we have to make so many decisions about things that impact our careers. Finding a genre that works for our writing style and interests is one of them. In talking to Ed, it was clear that he loves to write historical fiction, and his passion for this genre shines through. I hope you'll take the time to check out his website link below and his latest book, Unlike Any Other. Thanks so much for listening to the Emerging Writers Podcast. There are so many wonderful writers out there with works to explore. Our goal is twofold. We aim to inform and inspire new writers on how to achieve their goals, as well as highlighting works by new, undiscovered, or noteworthy authors we admire. Feel free to send us your recommendations, and we'll do our best to take a look. And don't forget to check out the line of writer-themed merchandise that supports the show at twobeanscafe.com, as well as checking out the links for the guests on this show. Join me the next time for my interview with crime novelist Lisa Tolls and our conversation about her upcoming thriller, Hot House. Thanks for listening. Onward and upward.